0: Well, it's the first Sunday of the new year, and so we're starting off the new year with a new sermon series called Making Sense of Jesus. And in the big picture, this is a sermon series about the doctrine of revelation. And if you're not familiar with what the doctrine of revelation is, here's what it is. God makes himself known and cannot be known unless he makes himself known. That's the gist of it. Now, there's general revelation, uh, which is God knowing in a broad, se- a broad sense, you know, um, You could be with any two people in the world, anywhere in the world, different backgrounds, and you could be sitting under the stars and marveling at the stars, and one of them could go, man, like we're just so small in this infinite cosmic universe. And the other person might be like, yeah, man, and there might be like a creator too. You know, that's general revelation, a particularly West Coast version. Uh, (laughs) But general revelation is when we deduce through creation or through human reasoning that there's a God. But then there's special revelation, and this is the sort of revelation that Christians are particularly interested in. This is God taking the initiative to make himself known and revealing himself through key moments in people. At the, at the heart of special revelation is the conviction that God, in fact, cannot be known unless God makes himself known. And God's done this in a few different ways. He's done it through the patriarchs. He's done it through the Exodus. He's done it through the prophets and Israel's history, but the climax of special revelation is God making himself known in and through the person of Jesus Christ, and particularly through his death and resurrection. So if you want to make sense of who God is, you have to make sense of who Jesus is. But although God has revealed himself through the person of Jesus, it's not always easy to make sense of Jesus, is it? Let alone to make sense of him in our everyday lives. Amidst the pressures we face, the busy world we live in, the stuff that we just go through day to day, it's difficult to sense Jesus' presence at all, let alone understand everything he says. But Jesus has made himself available to all of our senses. He has revealed himself to our sight and our taste and our smell and our touch and our hearing. And in this series, we're going to explore how Jesus has revealed himself to each of these five senses. And just for Richard Sandlin's sake, he's a PhD candidate at St. Peter's. He's doing a philosophy of the senses. Apparently, there's like 13 to 15 senses that I don't know about. Uh, But we're just going to focus on the five common, uh, dare I say, primitive uh, senses for for the sake of this series. Uh, But this series is also about the doctrine of mission because Uh, mission is is tied to the doctrine of revelation. God wants to be known. God has made himself known. But God makes himself known also in and through the people who know him. And so he doesn't just reveal himself so that people can pontificate about him. He reveals himself to the world because he wants the world to know him and he wants all of the world to know him. And he does that in and through his people. And so we're going to kick off this series today by exploring the sense of sight. And the sense of sight is arguably, you know, the most dominant of all of our five senses. Uh, scientists call this visual dominance. Visual information is usually uh, going to win over the other senses. You know, the, the Western world and, and our worldview, it wasn't developed by what we taste and hear so much. You know, it wasn't like someone ate a bagel and said, I'm going to come up with the empirical method of observation. You know, it's, it's mostly through what we can see and observe and repeat. But when it comes to sensing God with our sight, the sense of sight is actually the least reliable of all our senses. It's the most reliable in the world, but it's the least reliable of all our senses in approaching God. Scripture says things like, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. Or, we walk by faith, not sight. And the book of Revelation, which we'll be diving into today, actually works to undermine our confidence in what we can see. It works to undermine our confidence in the evidence of our eyes. Because what we see is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Uh, and what we see can actually blind us to spiritual and eternal realities. And so what are we to do then uh, with our sense of sight when it comes to making sense of Jesus? And that's what we're going to explore in our passage today, Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 through 19. We see that we cannot see Jesus on our own. We see that we cannot see Jesus on our own. Only Jesus can enable us to see beyond our sight and to see him as he truly is. And that's the big idea in our passage today. Only Jesus can enable us to see him. But when he does, when he allows us to see him, watch out, and we'll get to that part. So open your Bibles with me uh, to Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 Uh, through 19. If you don't have a Bible, uh, share one with the person beside you or download the app on your phone. But It'll be important to follow along with me as we work through this passage. So Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and turning I saw. The Apostle John wrote Revelation, and it's fitting, in my opinion, that the last book of the Bible is ap- uh, um, Apocalyptic Literature. You know, it's it's visual. It's, It's not propositional truth. It's full of images to fill our imaginations with God. And it draws out the truth of unseen realities. But it does so in such a way to show that these unseen truths are fundamentally more real than what we can see and perceive in front of us in the moment. Revelation, in particular, anchors us in the Ever present, ongoing worship of Jesus as King over the earth and over the heavens. And so it's fitting that the book starts out with a fresh vision of who Jesus is. But what is of interest is that St. John already has a lot of images of Jesus to draw from in his life. He's seen and heard and touched Jesus while Jesus walked on the earth. Uh, John, he saw Jesus transform water into wine. He could draw from that. He saw Jesus teaching at the Sermon of the Mount he saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain with James and John uh, or James and Peter uh, he even saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead we could go on and on about what John witnessed but what we see in the book of Revelation is that the circumstances John now faces calls for a fresh sight of Jesus altogether well what's going on in John's life that he needs this fresh uh, revelation of who Christ is When Revelation was written uh, toward the end of the first century, uh, the Roman Empire was not kind to Christians, and that's an understatement. Many were persecuted and tortured. The emperor Domitian uh, had upwards of 40,000 Christians killed during his reign, Uh, and for whatever reason, John's life was spared, but he was exiled to the island of Patmos, a place for criminals and troublemakers. And so John, he's exiled, and he has nothing on his hands but time, you know, time to Reflect and consider how the churches at a distance were being persecuted and were suffering. Churches that John pastored and personally knew and loved. Time to worry about his friends and family in Christ who were being harassed, losing their businesses and homes, being murdered. And as a result, you know, in those churches there was a strong temptation to deny Jesus. To forsake the faith for one's own survival or to tame down their faith. And on top of that, there were still the cultural pressures Uh, to uh, adopt beliefs that were inconsistent with the faith and and to just fit in with the culture. And so John, he's on the island of Patmos worrying possibly about these churches, the persecution they're facing uh, literally for their lives, but also the temptation to uh, distort the once and true faith of Christ. If we look at John then, and if John was looking out at the world and all he could see was his circumstances, what would he see? He's powerless. The church is in a perilous state. Is Jesus even with him? Is Jesus even with his church? Can things get any worse? He's on an island in the middle of nowhere with criminals. But is John in Patmos fretting and worrying and wondering where God is? It's possible. Scripture doesn't say. Nonetheless, we are told in verse 10, John is worshiping on the Lord's day. From the beginning of the Christian movement, Christians have gathered on a Sunday rather than a Saturday, which was traditionally the Sabbath, on a Sunday, the Lord's Day, to worship. And even exiled out on an island, John by himself worships because he knows Christians throughout the Roman Empire and throughout the world are gathering to worship and he is going to join them in spirit. And So we're told he's in the spirit on the Lord's Day. And when he's worshiping, Jesus pulls back the curtain. He unveils himself in a fresh, new way to John. And John, he sees Jesus as he now is. Not Jesus when he physically walked upon the earth. You know, John, he's seen Jesus die. He's seen Jesus resurrected. He's seen Jesus ascend into heaven. But now Jesus gives John a fresh vision of himself as the ascended and glorified Lord. John allow- Jesus allows John to see him as he is and will always be. But John's sight here in Revelation, it's a gift. It's not natural sight alone. Yet it's not just something that happened in his mind. I need to be clear about that. It's external. People in the ancient world knew the difference between an internal experience and an external experience. John is clear to distinguish what's happening here. And the scriptures show these different types of experiences. Look at verse 10. He says, I heard behind me, He's speaking spatially. He's speaking about something outside of himself. And then he says in verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw. What John experiences is a sense of sight that transcends sight alone. He experiences a sense of seeing that is beyond just physical seeing, it's seeing empowered by Jesus. John, he turns and he sees but what he sees leaves him grasping for language to explain. it. It's similar to the experience of getting married. Uh, when Julia and I first got married, uh, we sought out a couple to mentor us. And uh, the couple's name were John and Brandy. They went to the church we were going to. And, and neither of us have forgotten what Brandy said almost eight years ago now. Uh, at the time, she'd been married for John, to John for 10 years, so I guess they've been married 18 years now, which is crazy. And she said to us, uh, I married a stranger. I married a stranger. And I just figured the most natural next question would be, were you in an arranged marriage? Uh, (laughs) Turns out, no, uh, she was not. And so how is it that John, you know, was a stranger to Brandy uh, when she married him? During the moment of the wedding, technically he wasn't a stranger. At the altar, she looked at the man that she had been dating for five years. They weren't strangers. But 10 years into marriage, now 18 years into marriage, her sight has deepened in such a way that her knowledge of the man at the altar in comparison to the man she now knows, he's a stranger. When we experience things like this, what we see goes beyond our sight alone. It leaves us grasping for metaphors. You know, couples, they often say, you know, before I met my my, my so-and-so, I was half a person and they, they completed me. You know, they completely, like, was that person walking around like they're a half human being their whole life? You know, are all the single people in this room half people before they meet their spouse? Of course not. Goodness no. Jesus was single. He wasn't, like, half Jesus because he didn't have a spouse. (laughs) But we use these metaphors to convey a deepening of our realities. We use these metaphors to convey a deepening of our realities. Uh, Brandy says John was a stranger. Was he? No. She knew him quite well. She wouldn't have married him if she didn't know him. And yet, yes... Because she's deepened in her understanding of who he is. John, he turns around and he sees the voice which has been speaking to him. He sees the ascended Jesus. And what he sees, it deepens his understanding of what he has previously known about Jesus, but also surpasses it. And So let's get into what he sees. Look at verses 12 through 16. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw the seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as the snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the the sun shining in full strength. John sees a lot. John sees a lot. And the language he employs is, is soaked in symbolism. And it sounds a little foreign to us, this description. But it would immediately mean something to the original listeners of John, the people reading his letter. In our culture, we have symbolic language that we immediately understand. For example... Desjardins has got to stop double-shifting ham juice. If they tire him out, who's going to be able to unload those one-timers from the point on the power play? I mean, Hammer's a workhorse, but Hutton could use the extra minutes, and he's got a silky set of mitts. He usually shoots for five holes, but last week he scored on a short side clanger off the post in Minnesota. That kid's got game. Now, for some of you, that made sense. For the rest of us, including me, I have no idea what I just said. I had to ask Colin May to write that for me. It's about hockey. Now, if you understand hockey, if you understand hockey, that made sense. But can you imagine 2,000 years from now, if people discovered this sermon manuscript, but the only fragment they had left was that paragraph. They would say, in 2016 existed a man named Alistair Stern. He was insane. But if they understood the symbolism of hockey, they would understand what all that meant. Something about ham juice. Uh, We've got to do some digging uh, to get to the impact of John's vision. It's full of symbolism. John says he sees one like a son of man. John saw a person, the same person who lived in Palestine with him some 60 years before. But now Jesus, he's different. He's bigger. John is clear about who he sees. Jesus is like a son of man. John is drawing from a very specific image in the book of Daniel, from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. We read that earlier. Daniel sees one like a son of man. This one is the central figure of all of human history. He's the one in whom all of the kingdoms of the world are given to. He's the one whom everyone owes their allegiance to. One like a son of man refers to a preexistent heavenly being who comes to establish a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. And John, he turns and he sees that Jesus has fulfilled this prophecy of Daniel. He is man and he is God. He is one like a son of man. But then John sees that Jesus is clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. And John, he's drawn into the details of how Jesus is dressed. Yeah, no, more often than not, how someone's clothed is the first thing we notice because how someone is clothed, more often than not, is a statement. They're intending to make a statement. You know, if you see a woman wearing a a white cotton dress and a stethoscope hanging around her neck, you know she's probably a doctor or a nurse or someone you should stay away from if she's neither. Um, Just like if you see a man wearing a T-shirt with his own face on the t-shirt. You know that dude is awesome. Like you just know that's someone you want to talk to. Uh, what, statement, what statement does Jesus' clothing make about Jesus? Well, he's wearing the garments of a high priest because he is our great high priest. John is seeing that Jesus is, in fact, our sole mediator to bridge the gap between us and God. In Latin, which is not what the scriptures were written in, but it's interesting, in Latin, priest is an engineering term, and it means bridge builder. I like this. A priest is a, a bridge builder, and Jesus, as our great high priest, as our sole mediator, has built a bridge between the great chasm that exists between us and God. You see, from re- from general revelation, right? we might come up with some ideas about God, but we can't Bridge that gap. God is unknowable to a degree just from a human mind alone. I mean, I've never met someone who was just chilling under a tree and an apple fell on their head. And you know what? I believe that God is three persons in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that he sent his son into the world, and he was crucified, and he raised from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and he will return one day and bring glory and judgment, and his kingdom will have no end. Like This is just not general revelation. People don't just come up with a story. This is special revelation that Jesus brought into earth as our great high priest and has mediated the gap of sin that exists between us and God so that we can know God and be in relationship with God and be reconciled to God. But I know there's a more important question we're asking. What's the deal with the golden sash? You know, did Jesus just win a pageant? Uh, And there's a great importance in its position. You know, If it was around his waist, if it was girded around his waist in that time, it would mean he was girding up for work. But it's girded around his chest, which is a position of completion or accomplishment or or victory. Now, this is no Steve Harvey sash where suddenly it's going to be taken away. This is a definitive statement that what Jesus has done is finished. It is accomplished. He is victorious. As the high priest, he has made the offering that atones for sin once and for all time. He offered himself on the cross. All of our sins are forgiven. It is done. It is finished. Then John sees that the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. John's pointing to Daniel again in a different vision uh, where Daniel describes this Son of Man. He also speaks of the Ancient of Days who has this white Hair. And, and John is alluding directly to that but the amazing thing is the Ancient of Days in Daniel's vision is none other than God himself. Do you see what John sees? Do you get it? Jesus, the Son of Man, shares in the character and being of God like the Ancient of Days, he is God too. This is an explicit declaration of Jesus' divinity. And then John sees that his eyes are like... A flame of fire. You know, the, the pure white hair of Christ could signify purity. Uh, the flame in his eyes signifies that he is the purifier. Jesus, he sees through us. He sees through the act. He sees through the masks and the facades. He sees and his sight burns away all that separates from him, uh, us from him. And he purifies us moment by moment. And then John sees that his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And again, he's drawing from the book of Daniel a different vision where the kingdoms of ancient history are represented as a huge statue whose feet are a mixture of iron and clay, but it's a mixture that cannot bear the weight of those kingdoms. They're unstable kingdoms. But the ascended Lord Jesus has uh, burnished bronze feet. He's strong. He's firm. He has steady feet already tested and strengthened by the fire. All the other kingdoms of the world, they rest on shaky ground. All of the kingdoms that we try to establish, our little kingdoms, they rest on shaky ground. But the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, rests on feet that can handle the weight forever. And then John, he sees that from Christ's mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Which means all the words that proceed from Jesus' mouth are true. And they cut through the noise and the clutter and the confusion and the lies of this world. And lastly John sees his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This anticipates the end of Revelation where when Jesus declares all things new, the new heavens and the new earth are established. There's no need for the sun to illuminate anymore because God and Christ himself will be our light. If we pull together all that John's saying here, all that he describes, it's it's pretty overwhelming and I've barely dug into it with us. This is You could spend years digging into all the illusions, all the metaphors, all the symbolism in this passage, but what we come to see is that the Lord Jesus is worth being worshipped. This vision of him is powerful, and it's freeing, and it's redeeming, and it's world transforming, and it's John seeing Jesus as he currently is. But what difference does John's sight of Jesus make for us? Maybe you're thinking, if I saw this, Myself, yeah, that would make a difference. And you're right, it would, but not in the way you're thinking. Not in the way you're thinking. Seeing the ascended Lord Jesus with your own eyes the way John did, wouldn't solve all of the problems you may have with faith. It'd actually bring about a totally different response. Look at verse 17. John says, "When I saw him, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John collapses. His strength evaporates. He falls down as if he's dead. And he can't handle this special revelation of Christ. He can't stand before the ascended Lord. And we have to remember, John has been a Christian for a long time. His whole life, pretty much. He's an apostle. At the time of Revelation, he is in his 90s. He has had an authentic, saving faith his whole life, practically. This is... The beloved disciple, after all. The one who leaned into Christ's chest at the Last Supper. This is one of the inner three. This is one of Jesus' closest disciples. And yet, Jesus opens his eyes in such a way and gives him a fresh vision of himself that it terrifies John. The beloved disciple, the one utterly loved by Jesus, is terrified by this vision of Jesus. And he falls down at Christ's feet as if he's dead. Some scholars, they take passages like this and they say, it's not fear, it's, it's reverence. Sure, I guess, but it looks like fear in this passage, doesn't it? I mean, he falls down as if dead. It's not like John is trying to muster up some response. This just happens. It's terror. And his response, it's not uncommon in the scriptures. If you go to the prophet Isaiah, he has this vision of the Lord. And what does he say? Woe is me, I am cursed. I am a dead man. I'm a man of unclean lips. When Peter encounters the Lord on on a beach, what does he say? Depart from me. Go away. I'm a sinful man. Before the ascended Lord, John is a sinful man. He's unholy. He's unworthy. He's unable to stand. He collapses as if he is dead. Why? Because if we really see who Jesus is, as a result, we really see who we are. We see all of our pride, all of our confidence, all of our self-assurance, and it evaporates because we're fully exposed. Every secret thought you've ever had, just your thoughts, the history of them, we don't even know them all. Jesus knows them all, and you're exposed. Every action you've ever taken, Jesus knows them all. You don't even know them all anymore, but He knows. Our entire lives exposed and assessed, we're laid bare, we're put on display, nothing can be hidden, and the verdict is the same for every single person in this room, and myself included. Unworthy and guilty. And when we're fully exposed before the ascended Lord, we cannot stand, we can only fall dead at his feet. If we look at Jesus, and we've never had this sense of fear, it's likely that we're yet to see him as he truly is. As Jesus himself says, having eyes, do you not see? And if this is the case, if we haven't feared the Lord in this way, all we have to do is say, Lord, open my eyes. Heal my blindness. Let me see you. But if we see Jesus in our our sight as being empowered by Jesus himself, we will fear. The true reality of Jesus will terrify us because he exposes us and unveils the secrets of our hearts. And yet, look at verse 17 again. I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not. Fearing Jesus is comforting. It's the fear, fear not pattern all throughout the scriptures the one who is worthy of our greatest fear, the one who is evoking this response in us, who causes greater fear than anyone could ever cause in our lives, says to us, do not fear. me. Who Jesus is, it? it evokes fear in us, but it also brings great comfort to us because he's gracious toward us. Everything he's done on earth was to save us. He puts his hand on us. He puts his hand on us and he says, fear not you're right in fearing, but fear not. He says, look at what I've done for you. Look at verse 18. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, fear not because nothing can separate you from me. Because Jesus, he's the first and the last. He has the final say. Therefore, nothing can separate you from him. Fear not because he's alive forevermore. He can give you eternal life. Nothing can separate you from him. Fear not because he has the keys of death and Hades. Even when you die, he can resurrect you and give you life. Fear not. Nothing can separate you from him. And these are the words that, of comfort that Jesus speaks to John. And yet, and the words of comfort for us too. Which brings us back to the objection. If I saw Jesus myself, it would make all the difference. I'm sure some of you right now being like, you know what, I'm good. I don't need to see this and have this experience. Fair enough. But some of you might be wondering, like, I still, like, would like to see him. Like, this would help. Hear me, what John saw and heard, he saw and heard for us. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, write therefore the things you have seen. Jesus himself told John to write down what he saw so that others could see it too. Jesus seems to think that it will be sufficient for the rest of us to simply read about what John saw. Why? Because Jesus allowed John to see him as he is and always will be. The vision of John is enough. Not many, few in fact, on this side of eternity will see Jesus the way John saw Jesus. But we still get to see what John saw. We have his words and we can ask Jesus to send his spirit to empower us to see these words and the reality they convey as true. To see him rightly so that we might fear but also find the comfort of his grace. In other words, we can take what John saw to the bank as trustworthy and true Because Jesus says it is, and he commanded John to write it down for our sake. Which means Jesus desires us to see him. And he will send his spirit to empower us to see him. To empower us to see beyond what we can't see. That's the funny thing about sight. We get so caught up in what we can't see. You know, maybe you're saying, you know, I see these words, I can read them, I know they're true, but I still don't see Jesus in my midst. I wonder where he is, I wonder if he cares, I can't sense him in my day in and day out life, in the busyness, in the mess, you know, where is he? And when you assess your spiritual life, you're more concerned about what you can't see than what you have seen in the past or what others have seen around you. And this is a common experience, and if if it's your experience, there's nothing wrong with you. There's a couple of things we skipped in the passage which we need to look at now. Look at verse 12 and 13. On turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. In verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What does this all mean? Jesus is in the midst of his church, in the very midst of it. The ascended Jesus, the living Jesus, he is in the very middle of his church. He's not above it looking down. He's not outside it looking in. He is in the middle, right there in the middle with his church. And that's why he can give the messages to the seven churches of Revelation with such knowledge of saying, I know, I know what you're going through. And here's what I have to say about. I know your hard work. I know your struggles. I know your fears. I know your pain. I know your emptiness. And the risen and living Jesus lives and he moves among his churches and he's among us right now. He's not absent in this room. He's in the center of it. No matter what we may see, no matter how bleak it may seem, no matter how distant Jesus may appear, he's with us. He's in the middle of this space. He's in our lives. He's involved and he cares and you matter to him. You matter to him. You might not see it, but you can believe it because it's true. It comes from his own lips. Your life is not unseen to Jesus, even if he seems unseen to you. Finally, we have to remember that what John saw wasn't just for himself. Surely it brought him great personal comfort. He's in exile. Seeing Christ would have helped a lot. But what he saw was fundamentally for others. Jesus commands him twice in this passage to write it down and pass it on and share it. What he sees, he shares, and what we see, we share. And we know this in a basic sense. You know, you say, "Did you see that?" You have to, you know, hear about what I saw. You know, on New Year's Eve, a limousine exploded outside of my house. I'm not even joking, like exploded. It sounded like a bomb went off. And Julia and I look out the window and all I see is fire and black smoke. Uh, Everyone's okay, don't worry. It made the news, but I'm telling you about it and what's your response? You're like, "Ah, I have like 3,000 questions to ask Alistair after the service. (laughs) Talk to Julia. But uh, what we see, we share. It's innate in us. You know, it was amazing watching like the limousine is on fire. It, it could explode for all we know with the gas tank and stuff. People are just like standing around taking, se- I'm not joking, taking selfies with the limousine on fire. They're, they immediately feel the need to share what they're seeing. This is just innate in us. Did you see that? Have you, have you seen this? How much more is this true when Jesus empowers our sight to see him as he truly is? How could we not see? You know, say to people, You have to hear about what I saw. You have to see this. It changes everything. This year as a church, we need to see Jesus afresh. John was in his 90s when he saw this vision. May we see Jesus afresh too, but not just for our own sake, for the sake of our city. Let's not share visions of Jesus that are stagnant. Let's not bank upon our past faithfulness. Let's seek and pray and ask Jesus to reveal himself afresh again and again through his word and through his spirit. And let's encounter him through worship like John did. Let's not fail to worship the Lord on the Lord's day, to worship him in our lives, to pray and encounter him in spirit and word and truth. And let's not lose, fact or lose sight of the fact of why we worship. First, Jesus deserves our worship. If we see who he is, He warrants it. He deserves our praise and our love and our affection and our adoration and our thanks. Secondly, he allows us to see him so that others might see him too. Jesus has made himself sensible to our sight so that others may make sense of him through us. So we worship him, but our worship anchors us in the mission he has of making himself known to all people. And each and every single one of you in this room have a role to play in that mission. So let's live out that mission in 2016 as the church.